Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is uh, helping me out as a co-author of the cancer book I'm putting together. It's uh, Dr. Steve Gullens. Uh, he has broad experience as a consultant across the life sciences industry. Uh, he was a board director at Gemfire starting 2016. He's also a managing or was a managing director at Excel Venture Management, which was a Boston-based life sciences venture capital firm that he co-founded in 2008. So uh, he's been around, had a lot of experience, and we had a great call last time, and I wanted to have him back for the cancer book. So, Steve, thanks for coming back. Thank you, Richie. Great to connect again. All right. So my first question is, do you think or perceive that cancer is essentially a separate life form inside of us? And if so, when is that? Is it when it's a few cells, when it's a billion cells, when it's metastasized, or is it never a life form, and is it something else? I don't view it as a separate life form. In this, for for a number of reasons, uh, it, it, it inherently is dependent on. It's not that you can't be symbiotic and not be a separate life form, but in fact, it, our, it works in synchrony with our body. It is uh, not propagating itself into more life forms. It does not reproduce except within your body. So I see it as a standalone entity, a, a separate organ, if you want, in our own bodies with its own control system. Do you think it has its own homeostatic drive? Like, you know, if I have a primary tumor, does it act as one? Does the tumor have cell-to-cell signaling and, you know, saying, hmm, I have a hypoxic region, let's get some blood vessels in here? Or do you think that's just individual cell needs? 
I think every cell is responding uh, as a single entity. I was part of the team that sequenced the first tumor, solid tumor ever in history. And we actually, some of the data did not end up in the paper showing all the different subtypes of lineages that occur with different genetic mutations. That subsequently came out as information that's out there. So just like having uh, great-grandparents and then uh, progeny and progeny below that, you're seeing changes that go on, but no, no cell stands in isolation. It has to beget uh, sister and daughter cells that, that it can live with. But in the end, it's a community. It's a community that lives together. And it's responding to the world around it, which is an inherent part of Darwinian evolution, you know, responding through natural selection to environmental forces around you. Okay. That just that response can be a community of slightly different cell types. It doesn't need to be a single cell type. Okay. Do you think that there's any communication between a primary tumor and metastases, you know, like when the primary would be the boss that tells the metastases what to do or... Is there any coordination at all of action? Uh, there's no coordination of action. The, the mechanisms are pretty well known for what causes a cell to metastasize. Uh, if you think about it, uh, these mechanisms are inherent in all the other basic normal functions in our body. We have bone marrow cells that actually release from bone marrow that are stem cells that go to other body parts and become other cell types. And so the idea of homing into a new place in the body and functioning in that. In that case, you can even change its, its phenotype or its true uh, type of existence to the local environment. So I think it's just the idea of metastasizing as a natural element of the body, particularly among the, the lymphocytic and the blood cells of our body. Well, why would certain cancers have tropisms for certain areas, places they, they seem to prefer to go? Uh, they, well, part of it is just simple blood supply. If and the other obvious part is that the blood, yeah, they have to escape from the blood vessels if the blood vessels are carrying the cells. And so there are some places that are easy to get into. Some are more difficult. And then there's the uh, the actual communication system for when a cell migrates into a tissue, it has to bind to the the wall of the artery or the vein and migrate through it. And so all of those steps have very specific mechanisms, no different than uh, you can imagine for a, a uh, attacking a virus. It was in that region in a specialized cell type. So there are going to be natural preferences of a, think of it as a cell from your bone marrow that was a cancer, having a key to certain locks that are in certain tissues. It's always going to find those tissues. Uh, it's, uh, we have not understood that completely. And uh, obviously a part of it is, uh, it's a very dynamic system that's changing very quickly. But there are natural alliances when certain kinds of tumors end up in obvious places you go looking in terms of the migration. But there is no direct communication between them, aside from just general factors that get secreted to divide and grow and other things to the whole body. Okay. You mentioned that you had, you were one of the first to sequence a solid tumor. Yeah. Now that there is um, single-cell sequencing, has anyone, let's say, Let's say they they had a spheroid type tumor and they resected it yep. and they sequenced the heck out of it and they tried to see where the mutations are spatially and then maybe model it and go backwards in time and see how it first began or how it grew. Is that possible yet? You you can you can even do it with just simple computer al algorithms because you look for the percentage. When we first did this, we would see that you could do it just by counting the number of chromosomes 
or which chromosomes had duplicated. And you would say, oh my goodness, you know, a piece of the Y chromosome has suddenly duplicated in this portion of the, of the liver where there's a tumor. And so all of those cells came from that, that of single event of that, part, that partial Y duplication. And so you could actually reconstitute it at X percentage because uh, it's either the chromosomal abnormality. It's not true in every tumor but you can actually recapitulate it informatically. So that's the power of single cell sequencing and the informatics is beginning to put together this dynamic understanding of that every cell is different in some way, but the difference is disappears in the aggregate when you look across the whole colony. The largest difference when you're doing single cell sequence, especially in tumors, is the presence or absence of different immune systems. Uh, immune cells. So when you have a hot tumor filled with uh, lymphocytes, the uh, uh, immuno-oncology drugs like Keytruda and Opdiva are working because they actually have a way, those cells are already there and can be recruited. Whereas cold tumor had none of those tumor, uh, uh, lymphocytes around in it, they're all around it. And so that's the largest single cell observations that have come about. Uh, recently with COVID, there was a paper that came out today in nature, saying that uh, macrophages, monocytes, are the most invasive cells that are the culprits in the lung injury that people die of. So you're actually starting to see which immune cells are the culprits in any of these disease settings. So what, what do you view observed by looking at the placement, let's say, of you know of different mutations in a cancer? Is Does a cancer look like a Jackson Pollock, or is it like a Picasso where there's areas of organization, but they're kind of jumbled? Or does it look orderly at all, or is it just a complete mess? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I, th- I think it's a mix of all. There's always a few what they are called driver mutations, and uh, there's maybe 50 genes that P53 would be one. Uh, there's a few genes that show up repeatedly because those are a fundamental mutation that is part of a tumor. But a single mutation is generally not sufficient for the immune system, I mean, for the tumor to grow and escape the immune system's uh, attacks. And so you'll see sublineages with, say, P53 is the, the key the key one, or RAS, or MYC, or, or a lot of these other oncogenes are the key mutation. But then you see submutations that are adapting to the environment, whether it's hypoxia or the individuals are diabetic and as their glucose pulses. Just, you're going to see subpopulations that are intuitively grow faster. Or partic- the strongest uh, agent driving modifications is all the interventions we do therapeutically doesn't matter if it's chemo or radiation, the cells will respond. They'll find a way, hopefully, first to survive and then to proliferate. Uh, and those are big drivers of moving into new areas of new mutations and new cell types, new, new phenotypes. Primary tumors, I mean, they're microenvironments. Yeah. It's still, you know, cells that they came from. But yeah. metastases are in a more alien microenvironment. 
How do you think that affects their ability to evade the immune system and to function and to grow and to proliferate? That, not sure about it. A lot of it's going to be very specific to the tumor and the microenvironment. There are certain elements of the microenvironment that are generic, you know, certain fibroblastic uh, parameters, certain ability to bring in uh, blood vessels and to grow that all tumors need. But within that milieu, there is uh, the immune system that may or may not be an active participant in, in the cell tissue type to begin with. In addition, you'll see uh, local hormone influences that may or may not be active. But uh, I don't think there's enough information to answer all the aspects of metastases. In general, we've treated metastases as if they're the same as the primary. And we see the efficacy of therapeutics is very poor in metastatic tumors. So undoubtedly, there's something different. And we just haven't done the groundwork, nor have we had a chance to try alternative therapies because that first line works in the primary tumor. Let's try it first in the metastatic tumor. It's going to take more time and more different kinds of therapeutics to get at that. If I looked at a couple of different tumors, let's say, or let's say a big tumor in someone's colon. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of microbes there. It's a, you know, it's a microbiome. Yeah. I would think that each cell, because it's mutated differently, would have different metabolic needs slightly and would attract maybe different microbial players. So what would you expect to see if you tried to, if you were able to somehow hyper-localize the microbes that were around each cell in a tumor? Would you expect them to be different? And what do you think that would do? How would that affect the whole mass? Well, not every cell is mutated completely differently. You're going to find large domains or clusters of cells that are very similar. Uh, the bacteria are even more opportunistic than cancer in adapting to their environment. There's you know, many, many more species of bacteria and even more viruses living in our gut that can be, particularly in the digestive tract, are a part of the microenvironment around a tumor. And they're activating the immune system itself. So the microenvironment is be, that exists between the microbes and the tumor is an area currently of active investigation. Uh, the first pass at this kind of investigation is simply trying to find correlations for this kind of tumor. And you can characterize it as a cell type or a drug responsiveness or whatever it is, has more likely is going to see these kinds of bugs, these microorganisms around it. You, we assume that it's because the microbes can survive there, but there's also this obvious line of thought that they're actually supporting the tumor. A lot of microbes are very good at making uh, short-chain fatty acids, which are a part of the uh, treatment of epilepsy, for example. So they clearly are benefits for microbes that make certain types of foods. The tumor can adapt, the microbes can adapt, but there's a symbiotic opportunity there and whether it actually pans out, especially over time as the tumor is growing and the environment's changing, is unsure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And the other piece of it, obviously, is it's an inexact experiment because the diet, especially for people on chemo, uh, people taking supplements of cancer patients, varies over the course of the disease because as a human being, you're trying to adapt to live the best possible quality of life that you can. So we will mostly see correlative studies for quite a while. The idea of engineering bacteria to not deliver, say, a fatty acid that this tumor likes is years away, but within technically within our domain right now. We just have to have good rationale for doing it. Do you know anyone that's looked at the microbiome of people that have various cancers? 
and you know contrast it with i mean if you were oh this would be hard to do ideally it would be nice if everyone let's say got their microbiomes sequenced every six months and then if they get sick you can compare how it would change i don't know how much that would tell you but um but the, the, do you know anyone that's looking at this i know people have done it in in mice because it's a single tumor type i mean you uh, implant an identical tumor to all of them so it's not a different tumor environment you can give them all the same diet so you start to see that that's where the correlations begin to uh, become more obvious the the idea of doing it in humans is challenging right now just for not technically but just in terms of interpretation it would be very difficult in today's uh, world of mechanism to plausibly just state you have a mechanism and get it published in a high quality journal i'm sure people are doing it we're just not seeing those papers getting published. That if you have this tumor, these bacteria are good, and those are good are bad, uh, is not even uh, been brought to to a level where people believe it's true. Yeah, it's very complicated. I know there's a long way to go there. But it's, it's the problem is fundamentally, we can, it's not about experimenting on humans. We just can't. There's such diversity among the how all the humans get the disease, treat the disease, and everything else. And when you have an external factor like microbes that are based on the diet you eat, the antibiotics you take, all the drugs you're on, it's very hard to get a single answer. Um, what about uh, liquid biopsies or alternative biopsy methods, especially for hard-to-reach cancers, you know, pancreatic cancer, et cetera? What's, what's some of the new innovation there? Well, there's lots of great innovation on the diagnostic front, um, and we can talk a little bit about that where it goes to therapeutically. The liquid biopsies arose basically from the surgical suite, realizing they could get a piece of the tumor at a small, small piece of it and begin to do things with it. And it was very informative. And I was actually involved in some of those early studies. We were starting to see fundamentally differences in the presence or absence of immune cells. Uh, what came after that was the idea of testing your blood for DNA, this characteristic, or even your stool with the test from exact sciences, looking for DNA clues for tumors, really looking for relatively frequent mutations that are like in RAS or P53, or, or just looking for too many, too much of a particular chromosome. There's other markers that you could actually see. But at the end of the day, what you care about is uh, statistically on the therapeutics, true positives and true negatives had uh, one senior executive tell me until you get above 95%, you don't want to have people going in for biopsies when you're guessing where the tumor might be. With the, and even if you do uh, fine needle aspirates or fine needle uh, biopsies, what do you do with the data that ch changes your treatment paradigm? And that's the mismatch. For all human diseases, we always have been able to diagnose before we therapeutically can address. I mean, Dr. Alzheimer's first discovered Alzheimer's in the 1800s. Uh, sickle cell anemia, so the mutation was found in the 50s, 1950s, and we're just now talking about treating it. So in cancer, it's not that different, except that we're on a much more rapid trajectory. Our ability to find, detect, and even identify causal mutations of tumors is vastly exceeding the number of drugs we have. So it's as if, you know, imagine there was 100 mutations that needed 100 drugs. Well, we would only have three to choose from, and that's why there's a mismatch. But with the informatics opportunities and some other new technologies that are making things uh, in vitro better, we will begin to change that landscape. There's still a number of hurdles, uh, 
And, uh, you know, we could talk about those if you like to getting this, this whole paradigm of molecular, define the molecular phenotype and genotype of a tumor, and then define the course, the, the trajectory and the prognosis for a patient going forward and how we actually address that quickly. Yeah, how can anyone tell based on the, you know, after they, they biopsy a tumor and they look at all the mutations and they can, you know, can we tell which direction it will go in, how aggressive it'll be, how it'll respond to chemo, et cetera? Right. Well, there's a couple of rules of thumb and a couple of barriers to advancing things. One is that one thing that's been a false lead is penicillin. We got the impression that uh, infectious disease, that a single pill, a single drug was sufficient to wipe out a disease or the vast majority of it. And that worked in infectious diseases and a, couple, a few other isolated examples. Why that was so successful was, first of all, nature had figured out how to make these things, uh, bugs killing each other. But more importantly, you're actually killing an organism that is genomically and fundamentally different than the human body. So toxicity is not such a big problem. You know you're going to kill it if you get enough of that stuff in your body. And with a tumor, that's not you don't know that going into the experiment. So we were misled by that. The other thing is just when you do get a single drug, even an infectious disease, disease like HIV, we saw the ability to mutate around it is unbelievable in the case of a virus. But it's for human uh, cells, if you do things serially, you do drug at a time, inevitably you're leaving opportunities and selective pressures. So the idea of double, triple therapy becomes very obvious. And the question is, you now have an exponentially growing number of drugs you should try together to see what works. So how are we going to disentangle that web of potential drugs that work? Well, uh, a couple of thoughts around that. One is there are experiments being done, particularly in the organs on chips scenario, where the efficacy of having real human disease, say tumors growing in plastic chips with blood supply and everything else is beginning to recapitulate the efficacy that we see with drugs in humans. The FDA is, is backing a lot of those studies. You're not, you're not testing in mice, you're testing real human disease. So, so you can actually start to do combinations in a time and cost that's reasonable. The other is when you begin to pile together more than one good drug, if it's not just the generics, the cost of manufacturing, the cost of bringing it to market is so high that we now support, you know, 10, 20, $100,000 for a single drug. If you put two together, you're doubling that. You put three together, you're tripling it. The cost of manufacturing and getting to drug through the pipeline is long and hard. That has to change too. The good news is we've seen it change with the vaccines that came to market in the past 12 months. It's not that it's not possible. It's just there's a few factors. One is, while these were high-risk efforts with the mRNAs, their efficacy appears to be unbelievable. So if we go from the standard efficacy of a drug coming through clinical trials in cancer, which is 5%, and then look at all the vaccines, even the ones that didn't do very well at 50% and were abandoned, the efficacy was unbelievably high with these new technologies because they were actually targeted at the specific thing you were looking at. And so we can actually have higher efficiencies in efficacy. Toxicity, we have to work at a little bit more in terms of making better predictions. But the third thing is just the simple manufacturing, the millions and millions of dollars you spend, and nobody ever takes that risk ahead of 
finishing their trials because why would you waste your money? I know the Gates Foundations and others are looking for, this is sort of the last hurdle to get these truly revolutionary uh, therapeutics uh, into humans is let's reduce the time and cost of going from, I have a great drug I wanna try in real patients from three years and say uh, 10 to $20 million just to get to the patients or maybe two years down to a few months and with small incubators or, you know, flow through incubators, they can do it on the fly. If we can actually make that transition, everything comes down 10x. We begin to think about these multiple cocktails of therapeutics and marrying the true diagnostic markers, the diagnostic with different regimens and trying them. Does the, um, I mean, the way the FDA approves drugs, though, does it support that kind of paradigm? Or would the FDA have to change how they do things? And are they willing? Are they listening? The answer is yes, and uh, probably. The yes part is the FDA has actually been out front trying to bring new innovation into uh, the industry. They actually look at some of these technologies, adaptive clinical trials, organs on chips, all of these things. And with uh, the vaccines that came, they were not an impediment. They really were not an impediment, uh, despite what the, you might pick up from the media. They were on board uh, for, obvi- for all the obvious reasons, with the bar being you cannot kill a single person, which is a pretty important bar, except that on the timeline they're going. So they are in, uh, being encouraged by, frankly, all administrations to date, and even some, some of the new heads, uh, to be more uh, liberal in their thinking about how do we get things there faster. Uh, The the industry has been a little reluctant to, because people who are in the business of toxicology, in the business of manufacturing, only lose their jobs when they make a mistake. They don't like to change policies or plans. Say, say, you know what, if we use this gene chip technology to figure toxicology, we'll save a year. Well, what if it fails? They lose their jobs. So there is a risk in adopting new technologies. But now that we've seen it work once, and we've also seen a global community involved in all of these activities, and all of the recipes to make these things, do these things, are in the patent literature. So you will start to see elements of this appearing everywhere else around the world, and the FDA will want to keep up. Uh, So I think change is always much slower than you expect. But as we get our efficiency up, which has doubled in the last seven years of drugs coming through the FDA pipeline more frequently with success, people are going to be more permissive about what we need to do to get approval. Does the FDA require currently that any change you make to a cocktail or you know, that all elements of the cocktail are tested uh, exactly in a certain proportion or individually? Yeah, they have very strict rules around that. the quality of the materials, what the proportions are, and the assays that go into them. And that, that's one of the hurdles to, uh, you would prefer to have everything in a single cocktail as a way to protect that. But if you're taking different mixes from different places, you're not always sure. Uh, it, again, it adds another level of complexity to the synthesis. Anytime you mix two drugs into a single pill, there is a technical as well as a regulatory hurdle you have to go over it doesn't exist if you take two separate pills. So what what do you see as the future of cancer treatment? Is it going to come from drugs? Is it going to come from, you know, more chemo? Is it going to come from a better understanding of how cancer functions? I mean, where do you think it's going to be? Well, the human genome was done about 20 years ago. 
at that point we had the entire recipe book, but we didn't have the recipe. <laughs> we had all the ingredients, right? We didn't know the proper mix. For 20 years, we've been doing a few things, uh, whether it's small drugs or genomics or drug discovery, biologics, is we've been trying to figure out what the recipes are. And uh, because we've been constrained by really testing one ingredient at a time, it's been a challenge to find, to make huge strides in cancer. The, the success rate of 5% is very low. The average across all drugs is 9%. At the same time, there's over 7,000 clinical trials ongoing for cancer. And the next closest is 1,000 in infectious diseases. And so we have enormous amounts of opportunity to, to try to tackle this. What we're seeing is that there's fundamentally a disconnect between toxicity and efficacy related to making the drug work only on the tumor cell. If the drug could target only the tumor environment, we have probably 50 drugs, biologics today that would work, interferon, interleukin, you name it, if it only went to the tumor. They were all tried in the 90s. There's over 2,100 interferon gamma clinical trials, and almost nothing's on the market. It's very toxic. You see, I've seen multiple technologies that are starting to target. There were first attempts to do this, but started to target nature's own cocktails of what kills tumor. Think about something like tumor necrosis factor. Its name tells you what it does. But if you inject it into a human, they're dead in two hours. But if you inject it just into a tumor at the end of your finger and collect the TNF that comes back, you get a 100% cure rate. So it's about partly about delivering to the cell type of interest. The other is actually the riddle of which therapy matches which disease or which tumor type. Well, we need to solve that first step first. When we do that, we can start to mix and match a little more. And that fundamentally comes back to what I was saying before about the cost of making these things. Uh, as they come off patent, and fundamentally, as we get cheaper ways to make small batches that can be deployed to small trials, I think we could actually see a lot more opportunity going on. Uh, one of the things I find very encouraging is for the for 40 years, from the 80s to uh, actually for probably 60 or 70 years, from the 50s yeah, to, the, to about five years ago, the average was 24 drugs a year get approved by the FDA total. That includes Me Too drugs. Six years ago, that number changed, and we're now up above 50 drugs a year getting approved. That, that And the number of trials that have been started per each year has not changed in, this, in the last 10 years. So our efficiency across all diseases has doubled. The efficiency in infectious diseases is 25%. But here we had all of these new, new, virus, these new vaccines come through with 80% success rates. And most of the time, you know, we, we still don't have a vaccine to HIV or to uh, malaria or too many other things. So we are figuring out how to build these cassettes, what to put in them and how to make them work. So the efficiency is going to drive it because it will drive more money and it will bring more people. People will be more willing to take the toxicity risk. It's more rare and the likelihood of success is higher. And finally, the, the part that I see a lot of in my day-to-day -day activities is in the last two years, $26 billion of venture capital money has come in to the United States. Venture, new venture capital money has been de dedicated to, be, to uh, life science investments. 10 years ago, it was 1.8 in one year. And that does not include the public market. So I, God knows how we're going to get 
two to four X multiples on 26 million over the last two years. But I hope we do because the efficiency has to go up two, three, four X. No longer should we have 24 drugs a year, 50 drugs a year where we are right now. But across all indications with the lion's share of trials in, in cancer, we should be at 100, 200 successful outcomes a year. Well, very good. Well, Steve, thank you again for coming back. What's the best way for people to, you know, to find you and reach you now that you're doing full-time consulting? Uh, Steve.Gullens at gmail.com. If you go to the internet and you can look up my book, Evolving Ourselves, I wrote with Juan Enriquez. It's pretty easy to find me or just go to LinkedIn. Okay. Thanks. Well, very good. Steve, thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. It's great to connect again, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.